Getting towards the end of our journey in the book of James. Got a few more weeks to go before we cross the finish line, but we're our, we're, we've made our way into chapter 4 now. If you're just joining us for the first time, the title of our sermon series has been Putting Feet to Our Faith. And we've said week in, week, week, in, week out that the book of James, it's the most practical book for Christian living in the New Testament. In fact, we said last week it's the show me book. Basically, it says, if you have faith, you're going to show me and how you live. And so as we move on to chapter 4 today, this is going to be a really good conclusion to the message that we had last week. If you weren't here last week, I'll give you a recap and we'll kind of weave this together. But the title of our message today is Choosing Our Friends and Our Enemies. Choosing Our Friends and Our Enemies. And as I always like to do, I want to start us with something to think about. Okay, here's a question to think about. It's a tough one, but it's something we all have to ask ourselves on a daily basis, okay? If there is one primary question that reveals our daily walk of faith, it's this. Today, is your life all about you or is it all about God? Today, is your life all about you or is it all about God? Now, there's a key word in that question. That key word is today. Because you may have answered that question yesterday with my life is more about God than it is about me. But you woke up today getting ready to fight the same battle, the battle that we're all going to fight until Jesus comes back or we go to be with him, whichever one comes first. Because the Bible says that when you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have an old, dead, sinful nature, but you got to keep putting that nature to death, that nature that we're all born into at birth because of our ancestors, Adam and Eve, that nature that wants your life to be focused on you and not God. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit begins to indwell you, God begins to change your heart and your mind where you begin to focus on Him as as the driving force of your life and not yourself. But it's not a one-time decision. Yes, there is a one-time decision to receive salvation, but that lifelong process of sanctification, that cleansing where we become more like Jesus, that takes a lifetime. And so we have to constantly put that nature to death, that nature that looks in the mirror in the morning when you're getting ready for work or you're getting ready for school, that nature that thinks that your life is about you instead of about God. Last week we said uh, the Bible talks about two different types of wisdom, okay? It said that we receive wisdom from above, that's heavenly godly wisdom that's focused on Him, and then we receive wisdom from the world, and that is lowly wisdom that is man-centered, it's self-centered, it's centered on us. And all of us have both if you're Christian, all right? When you are born again, you receive and understand that godly wisdom, but we're still sinful. We still struggle with that worldly wisdom. Again, we struggle with making our lives all about us. All of us do. Everyone, without one person in this room accepted, all of us struggle with this every single day. And it's, it's something that as I was praying through the message here, I, I think if the world could give us a mission statement, the mission statement would, would just be this. It's all about you. The world wants you to believe it is all about you. And how do I know that? Well, turn on the television. You're going to see self-centered marketing campaigns. All right, you get on the internet, you're going to see narcissistic social media platforms. You're going to see ridiculous reality TV shows, even in the business world. In the business world, sometimes we see people as just figures or pawns that can help us get further along in our career. And we use the disguise of that. We call it networking. By networking, we treat people not like people, but like pawns to get us where we really want to be. That's the world that we live in. 
It's, it's the world that we're wired to be a part of until we become Christian. And then when we do become Christian, it's a world that we battle against every day. Because again, your feet hit the floor every morning. The world, the flesh, and the devil want to get your attention off of God and onto yourself. And the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the people of God are saying, don't go that way. Take your eyes off of yourself and put them on God because he's worthy of our attention and he's worthy of our praise. And when we make him first in our life, it gives more freedom and joy than we could ever have if we were focusing only on ourselves. The Bible, you know, here's a Christian phrase you often hear in in every church I've ever been a part of, and I think it's biblical. the, The phrase is, be in the world, but not of the world. Easier said than done, right? Okay, we're supposed to be in the world. We're supposed to be a witness to non-believers. We're supposed to go where non-believers go and love them and share the gospel. We're supposed to work alongside non-believers in the marketplace. We're supposed to live alongside non-believers in our neighborhoods. We're supposed to love them, be patient with them, reflect Christ to them, and also share the good news of the gospel with them. But a lot of times we become so heavenly influenced by them, we become a lot more like them than we do the church. And it's a constant struggle. And it's a constant battle to be in the world, but not of the world. So James, as he began last week talking about this wisdom from above and this wisdom from below, now we look and and here's the big idea that I want to share as we walk through James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Here's the big idea. As Christians, our faith commands us to choose between friendship with the world and friendship with God. And this choice is a daily struggle. Let me focus on those last two words, daily struggle struggle daily because you have to make that choice every day when you get out of bed is my life going to be about me or is it going to be about God and struggle because I don't doubt that it's hard or easy for anybody in this room it's hard it's hard for me as a pastor it's hard for our deacons of this church it's hard for our leaders and our prayer warriors who've been walking with Jesus 50 and 60 years it's a conscious decision you have to make daily to deny yourself and exalt God at His rightful place in the throne of your heart. And it is not easy. James does not say it's easy, but he makes it clear and plain what we should be doing. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of James. Again, we'll be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, it's on page 1201 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you would stand at this time, under the reading of God's holy, infallible, and errant word, Again, we're in James chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let us pray. Father, these are heavy words, but they're your words. Father, help us as we walk through this in James chapter 4. Help us to understand. Help us to be submissive to and respond to in repentance and faith. This understanding that, Father, you are king. You are God. You deserve the throne in our hearts. And, Father, we in our sin try to remove you from that throne on an almost daily basis. Help us to see the truth of this word and truly receive it today, that we would respond to it in repentance and faith. Father, help us to be friends with you and enemies with the world and not the other way around. It's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen. As we, as we walk through this passage together, okay, in the next 15 to 20 minutes, if we're not careful, we could misinterpret or misunderstand some heavy things that James is saying. So I want to be clear about many things. Again, James is the most practical book in the New Testament, but I think it's one of the most misunderstood or misquoted books in the New Testament because people misunderstand what James is trying to say. So I I think I'm going to make two propositional points today, and I think these points come right out of the text. They're plain English, easy to understand, not easy to follow. Here's the first of the two, according to this that I want to say. Number one, if you choose to be a friend of the world, you will be an enemy of God. The Bible clearly says it in this passage. Let me read it, and then I'll explain it. Verses one through five. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Let me stop there. Let me define the word world. Because I remember the first time I read this as a new believer, I thought God commands us to love the world. Now he's telling us if we love the world, we're his enemy. Well, what exactly does that mean? James is not saying that you are not to love people. Okay, there is no provision in scripture. There's no way around it. God commands you to love God and love others. There's no one that you have permission from God not to love except for Satan. If if there's a human being, that human being is made in God's image and God has commanded you to love them. But when James uses the word world, he's talking about the system of the world, the nature of the world. And again, the nature of the world is to make it all about you. Turn on TV. I mean, these marketers over and over and over again, doesn't matter what the product is, they're saying new and improved, new and improved. Your life's not all it could be, but if you buy this, it will be all it could be. And and you need this because you deserve it because it's all about you. And what happens? We go out and buy the product. We're still not happy. I used to make fun of my dad all the time because he has about five different machines in his basement he has the ab roller the ab doer the uh I, I mean all the things in the world that would give him stronger abs and still not happy right it, i mean now all the clothes that he has when he takes them out of the dryer he hangs them on top of the ab roller the marketers are genius they want to show you that your world is not all it could be but if you buy what they have it will be and by the way you deserve it because it's all about 
you. And then all of a sudden, you read the Bible. And if you're a believer, you receive the Holy Spirit. And you, you begin to understand for the first time in your life that your life is not about you. It's about God working through you. And by the way, that does not mean that you're not valuable to God. All right, let me clarify that as well. That does not mean that you are not loved. That does not mean that your life is not incredibly important. But it means the purpose of your life is His glory. But when you give Him the glory, you receive joy. A joy that you could never have if your purpose in life is to pursue your own glory. If you try to pursue your own glory, what makes you happy today won't make you happy tomorrow. That, that promotion you got at work, you're going to be looking for another promotion. That pat on the back you got from your spouse or your friend, you're going to be looking for another pat on the back. That Z71 off-road extended cab you have in your car, you're going to want to put swamp tires on it. All right, It's not going to be enough. You're always going to be wanting more. But when you make it about God, there's an ocean of unbelievable glory that is due His name. And each day is a joy to say, my life is not about me. It's all about you. Again, last week we started off our message with a similar question. And the question we asked last week was, what's the motive for why you do what you do in your life? And the motive, you're gonna, it's going to drill down to the very bottom. Here's the example I used last week if you weren't here. I said, if you were walking the walls, the, the hallways of, of Metter High School and you ran into a student that said, ooh, ooh Mr. Bo, I got an A. And I'll say, why does that make you happy? Well, I want to be a doctor and I got to get into grad school and, and I got to get into college and this A is crucial. Well, why do you want to be a doctor? Well, I got a lot of help and, 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 and doctors were so good to me and I want to help other people. Well, why do you want to help other people? And you keep drilling down further and further and further and eventually it's either going to be you want to do it because of your glory or you want to do it because of God's glory. And every single one of us has that sin in our hearts where there's still some desire for our own glory and we have to put it to death and confess it to God. And by the way, before we get into this, the, the meat and potatoes of verses 1 through 5, let me just say, there's nothing wrong with having joy in God using you in a mighty way. All right, when, when I'm at the door and people are shaking my hands and say, you know, Bo, that, that really spoke to me today. That gives me joy. I'll be honest with you. It fills me with joy to know that God could use me. But if the purpose of what I'm doing is to get a pat on the back on the way out the door, remove me from this pulpit. Because that's not why I'm supposed to be here. And the same goes for all of you. Now, you may hold the, the, the role of pastor this high, but the Bible says that we're all priests. We believe in the priesthood of all believers if you are covered in the blood of Jesus and filled with His Holy Spirit, which means your job, whether you're cleaning streets, which is what I did at seminary, whether you're teaching children, all right, whether you're in an office organizing papers, I don't care what you're doing, you have a holy calling. You're called to make that office your sanctuary. And when you go in there in the morning, you're going to be doing it for His glory or you're going to be doing it for your glory. And we all have to ask ourselves that question every day. So, James says in this passage in verses 1-5, through five, if you are a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. And again, that word world is not the people in the world, it's the system of self-centeredness in the world. Because here's, here's another way of saying what the world wants you to believe. For those of you that have watched this as my wife's favorite movie, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the great theologian Veruca Salt said, I don't care how, I want it now. 
Isn't that who we are in 2017, especially in America, where we're the most privileged country in the world? I don't care how, I want it now. And the Bible says, if you're a Christian, your heart and your mind should turn 180 degrees away from that, from that statement. I don't care how, he deserves glory now, is what the Bible says. But we all wrestle with it. And, and when, when we, we wake up in the morning and we say, I don't care how, I want it now, guess what happens? Exactly what James says. What does he say? He says, it causes quarrels and it causes fights and it causes murder and it causes covetousness in our daily lives that when God is not on the throne of our hearts, but we're on the throne of our own hearts, we, we, we can't get past this conflict. And here's why. If your world's all about you, then you've created your own kingdom. And anybody who does not agree with you that it's all about you, they're a threat to your kingdom. And if they threat your kingdom, your response is going to be to quarrel. Your response is going to be to fight. Your response is going to be murder and covetousness. Your response is going to say, how dare you not recognize that it's all about me? And I would say to some degree, all of us wrestle with this in some way. In some way. Some of us are further down the line than others, and we've been putting this nature to death for so many years that there are some people in this church that I would say are incredibly selfless and just embody the Spirit of Christ. But you know what? Even they, no matter how many years they've been following Christ, they've got to put that to death. They've got to put it to sleep. The, the main issue and the reason why there is no world peace, okay, now, anybody and their mother can put, we need world peace and put it on your Facebook page with a banner for, the, for two days and just pray that God would give us world peace. Well, until Jesus comes back, there will not be world peace. And the reason why is we have a million little kingdoms. I've got my kingdom and you've got your kingdom. And as long as you don't you know, get in the way of my kingdom, I'll try not to get in the way of your kingdom. Well, all these kingdoms are clashing in a world where people don't recognize God as Lord. And what happens is war. Some of you in this room are old enough to remember World War II or Vietnam or Korea or the Gulf. And there will be more. It won't go away. And it won't go away because of one word with three letters and that word is sin. And it's in our hearts before it ever gets to nuclear weapons. It starts right here. We all wrestle with it. I, 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 didn't, I wondered if I was even going to bring this up, but I think in, you know, I, need, I need to. If anybody watched the news this weekend and saw the horrific things that took place in Charlottesville, Virginia, a bunch of ignorant, disgusting white supremacists walking around with torches in 2017, absolutely disgusting what they did, and even more disgusting how people responded. And I got on Facebook last night, I couldn't sleep, and I was just scrolling up and down my feed, and I was embarrassed at how everybody was responding, Christians and non-Christians. Whites, blacks, and Asians. I was disgusted at how everybody was responding to it. And then all these, all these political leaders get up and make a statement about, we need to love one another. It's not going to change except for one word, gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can change hearts. Political strategies can't do it. Hiding nuclear weapons can't do it. You know, creative psychological presentations can't do it. Education is wonderful and it's needed, but you can't educate somebody out of sin. We need a changed heart. And the only one that can do that is Jesus Christ. Amen. 
The problem we have is not a political one. It's not. It's not a racial one. It's not an economic one. It's a sinful one. And it's been happening since the very beginning of time. Since Adam and Eve. And the only way it will change is through Jesus Christ. I want to scream that from the hilltops when Washington, D.C. makes a statement about what we should do or not do. But you know what? I don't live in Washington. I live in Metter. And this is where God's called me to be influential. And this is where God has called me to live out my faith. And maybe we can't change the world, but we can change this community. We can change this church. And we can do it by doing what the Scripture tells us to do. And that's just surrendering to Him and getting out of your bed every day and saying, God, it's not about me. It's about you. Now, let me talk about the divine truth of this self-centered kingdom, okay? Here, I'm just going to real quickly walk through some things that are mentioned here in various parts of verses 1 through 5. That self-centered kingdom of the world, all right, with self-centered people, they don't ask God for things, and when they do, they ask wrongly, okay? That's what it says here in, uh, in verses 3 and on. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, all right, if you have a self-centered kingdom, you probably don't ask God. You try to go out and get it yourself. And then if you do ask God, you, you ask God for selfish reasons. And God says, I'm not going to bless that. It's an unanswered prayer. When our kingdom is about us, and it's not about Him. Self-centered people don't realize that they are God's enemy when they became the world's friend. This is, a, this is a heavy truth. When I first became a Christian and I began to read this in the Bible, I, I really had some doubts about it when I, I said, how could I be an enemy of God? I love people. I'm benevolent. I, I was a volunteer. Before I was a Christian, I was a, a volunteer for the American Red Cross and I gave financially to other entities and I sacrificed time doing things I didn't necessarily want to do because I wanted to help other people. But you know what? Before I had the Spirit of God in my heart, the Bible says I was an enemy of God, and I believe it now more than ever. And the Bible says also, if you look in the book of Hebrews, and it talks about faith, and in other areas of Scripture, it says that you have to have faith to please God, because without faith, you don't believe in Him, and you're not doing it for His glory. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if you are living for the world, if you're living for yourself, the Bible says that you're an enemy of God. That's heavy, but it's true. It's heavy, but it's true. And then there's a very interesting uh, verse at the very end of verse 5. Here's what it says. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? Here's what that means. It means that when you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. And as that Spirit of God indwells you, He is jealous for the glory of God. Now let me define the word jealous. All right, Oprah Winfrey, I've heard her testimony before. She abandoned the Christian faith because she read a passage of Scripture that says our God's a jealous God. And she says, I can't picture God up there saying, oh, I wish I was this and I wish I was that. And she said she abandoned Christianity because of that. And the sad part is that's not what it means. So she abandoned her faith because of a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of Scripture. When the Bible says that God is jealous, it doesn't mean that He wishes He was you or He wishes He had something that you have. When the Bible says that God is jealous, it means God has, an, has a laser beam focus on what's most important and He won't take His eyes off of it. 
He says, I will be glorified in your life and I've given you my spirit and that spirit inside of of you is turning around saying, give me glory, worship me. I am the one that is worthy. I have a plan for your life. I want to work through you and accomplish great things if you will trust me and you will give me the glory for it. But when we don't give God the glory and we don't turn to him and we make it about us, the Bible says that spirit gets jealous and turns inside and convicts us and eventually... If we're not careful, the Bible says that we quench and grieve the Spirit and we quiet God down in our hearts so quietly that we can't even hear Him speak. And then we begin to live in sin without conviction. The Holy Spirit was given to us to change us, to make us more like Jesus Christ. He's a person who indwells us and He bears fruit in our lives. But when we make it about us and not about Him, He can't bear that fruit. And so he's jealous for the glory of God. So number one, if, if you choose to be a friend of the world, you'll be an enemy of God. What, what's the converse of that statement? Number two, if you choose to be a friend of God, you're going to be an enemy of the world. Okay, listen to verses 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now, here's another passage that if you don't understand the context, you will butcher the meaning, okay? God is not saying it is more holy to be sad and gloomy all the time. In fact, I would say those who have joy are truly a reflection of God, all right? Because joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, is it not? So we have to say, okay, God does want us to be joyful, and God does want us to have happiness and joy in our salvation. So in this passage, when he says that he wants our laughter to be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom, he has to be meaning something specific, right? Right. Well, here's what God's saying. When you come face to face with your own sin... You should be mournful over it. You shouldn't celebrate it. You shouldn't parade it down the street. You should be on your knees begging God to forgive you for it. That's what he's saying. And I'm, I'm, full honesty here. I believe that God can save a human being at any age. Any age. I believe, I, I have friends of mine who believe they had a, a, a significant conversion experience at four years old and they're in their 60s and they're faithfully following God and they point to that moment that they were four years old and God changed their heart. God can do anything he wants. But let me tell you my conviction. Okay, I was a youth pastor at this church for almost three years. And one one of the things I was scared of was leading teenagers into a false belief of conversion. And the reason why is this. When you come to God One of the signs that your heart has been changed is you mourn over your sin. And a lot of times I'd go to these retreats or these camps and I'd see kids laughing as they walk down the aisle to receive Christ. And yes, there's joy in our salvation and we celebrate that. But if you call yourself a Christian, but you've never come face to face with your sin and you've never realized what an unbelievable threat that is to the holiness of God, what an unbelievable thing that is. If you've never thought just how offensive that is to the one who loves you and created you and died for you and gave you the opportunity for new life, if you've never felt that, 
then I question sometimes if you've ever truly received the Holy Spirit. I have that burden in my heart. I do. I don't want one person to stand at the gates of heaven and God say, depart from me for I never knew you. And they say, well, I did know you. My youth pastor, Bo, told me I was a believer. I'm scared of that. I'll be honest with you, I am. Because I believe a true proof that we have the Holy Spirit is that that doesn't mean we don't sin. We do. We struggle with it. But the key word is struggle. We don't celebrate it. We mourn over it. We ask God to help us. Every week as I bow there and we pray during silence, I think about sins in my life that I'm just wrestling with. And I say, God, how many weeks am I going to pray the same prayer? Would you forgive me and would you help me? I mean, I wrestle with sin. I just, I do. More than I ever have. It's part of our Christian walk that we wrestle with that. God wants to bless us and He wants to change us and He wants to make us like Jesus, but we come to Him through mourning to do that. Let me say a word about grace. We defined grace several weeks ago. I think this is a great definition. It comes from the late philosopher Dallas Willard. He said, grace is God working through us to accomplish what we cannot accomplish on our own. Love that definition. Grace is God working through us to accomplish what we cannot accomplish on our own. Here's the thing. To receive grace, you have to be humble and admit that you need it. And God gives grace to those who are humble. That's what the scripture says. When you say, God, I can't do it. I can't love my wife the way you call me to. I can't pastor this church the way that you call me to. I can't raise my daughter the way you call me to. I'm a sinner and I'm going to fail, but I want to do it the way you want me to. Will you help me? It's like a bell that goes off. It's like, you're a candidate for grace. When you come to God that way and you admit that you need him, he wants to help. He wants to push his sleeves up and make you more like Jesus, and make a miracle happen in your life, and work through you to make something beautiful. But you have to admit you can't do it in the flesh. You have to admit that you need the Spirit to do through you what you cannot do yourselves. And to be humble, he gives us even more directions. He says, you will submit to God through self-denial, just like Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will be yours. You have to resist the devil. That means stop playing games with temptation. If you're tempted to do something, run the other direction. One of the great examples of that in Scripture is Joseph in the book of Genesis. What happened when Potiphar's wife started seducing him? He ran. He got out of Dodge. He didn't sit down and say, well, let's sit down and pray about this. He got up and he bolted so fast he left his coat there. We need, to, we need to run from temptation. doesn't matter what people think. We need to get out of dodge when the devil comes in. We also need to intentionally draw near to God. He says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. That's not a demand. That's a loving wooing of a father who loves you more than I could put into words. He's saying, I love you. I've created you. I have a purpose for you. I want a relationship with you. Will you draw close to me? Will you get quiet enough to hear me? Will you read my word? Will you offer up prayers? Will you serve my people? Will you feed my sheep? I want more of you. That's the father that we serve. That's the father that gives grace to the humble. So how do we sum all this up? Well, if I had to sum it up in one sentence, I'd say this. 
Choosing friendship with God will bring great challenges from the world, so we need to follow Christ who has overcome the world. You won't be able to live the Christian life apart from the Christ. It's impossible. It's how God designed it. John 16.33 says this. This was Jesus getting ready, getting ready to go to the cross. And here's what he says to his disciples. I have said these things to you that, you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. All the temptations you have to make it all about you, Jesus was tempted the same way, yet he never sinned. He never turned to that temptation and said, yes, I want to make it all about me. He said, no, not my will, but the Father's. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And Jesus says, I've already blazed the trail. I've already shown you how. You can't do it on your own. But if you follow me, if you trust me, if you draw close to me, you can do it through me, through my spirit. Only Christ could have lived the way we should have lived, earning our righteousness. Only Christ could have died the death we deserved, taking on our punishment. Only Christ, through his resurrection, could make a way from death to life. Only Christ, living in in us and through the Holy Spirit, can enable us to see our lives are not about us, but are about the glory of our Creator. So what's our takeaway? Let me make this as practical as I can. Draw near to God through Scripture, prayer, worship, and service, and he will draw near to you. There's nothing, there's nothing in this world like closeness with God. And God says, I've made ways for you to draw near to me. Reading my word. Not that you understand every word, but you submit to it. You read it and you put yourself before it and say, God, speak to me. You pray. You serve others. Confess your sin. And you ask God, God, draw near to me. And he will. Because that's his desire. He wants a relationship with you more than I can put into words. Sin has gotten in the way, but Jesus Christ has made a way to remove the penalty of that sin that you could have a relationship with him.